0: We have here a particular topic that could not be more timely, couldn't be more relevant. Uh, Mr. Hybe mentioned uh, turmoil. The region, as we know, is got More than one kind of oil, there's turmoil, and there's, 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 the other, there's the other kind. We have uh, four specialists, each is being asked to hold their remarks to less than 12 minutes. Uh, we have uh, distributed 3 by 5 cards uh, that we would encourage you to, actually 4 by 6 <laughs> 5 by 7 cards there uh, for the more long-winded, uh, to uh, write out your questions uh, rather than having uh, commentators and long-winded spe- speeches uh, from the floor. I'll ask each of the speeches to come to the podium here because the floor is flat so that uh, you'll have eye contact with each of the, of the speakers. Uh, clearly, this is an epical uh, time in terms of United States Arab relations, U.S. Middle East relations, U.S. Islamic world relations. And for both the American public and private sector, the United States is in some ways quite a bind. It's caught on one hand between long standing built in contradictions, uh, emphasizing the pursuit and protection of America's. Geostrategic interests in war and peace issues, uh, economic <coughs> issues, national security issues, on one hand, and on the other, uh, that which also in the realm of established thought, conventional wisdom, informed opinion passes for enduring and enduring values having to do with moral principles, having to do with ethical precepts, having to do with the issues of gender, human, and civil rights having to do with issues of pluralism and increasing the level of popular participation in the national development processes of our friends and partners and allies, as well as ourselves here. And while there is much in the way of an intuitive knee-jerk propensity to intervene, to interfere, uh, here's where the golden rule comes back to hit, to harm, to hurt, and hinder. Do not do unto others that which you would not have others do unto you as a frame of reference. Our first speaker will address the energy uh, aspects and dynamics and components of these challenges uh, to Americans and to all others with the vested interest in engagement in the Middle East. Dr. Herman Fanson was for just under 12 years the senior advisor to the Minister of Petroleum of Oman. He was the chief economist to the International Energy Agency in Paris. He's the senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies focusing on energy issues. He's also the executive director of the Energy International Group, Herman Francis.
1: Thank you very much, John. Pleasure to be here this afternoon. I just had an hour and a half talking about Oman. And now we talk about, really, the, uh, from my perspective, the uh, oil side of the picture and what could happen what may happen in the weeks, months, and years ahead. Uh, let us first go back briefly. You know, when I started in the energy business the US government, the Congress, in the mid-1970s, just two years before I got my first job, the oil price was one dollar a barrel, one dollar. In 1972, it went up to two and a half dollars, 73. Before the oil shock, it went up to three and a half dollars. Then we got the oil shock price uh, tripled to about 11 dollars a barrel. And a few years later, the Iran revolution, the price went up to 35 dollars a barrel and today's dollars about 100 dollars a barrel. So then price went down again, about 20 dollars a barrel for 15 years. And then we got the impact of the Asian, I would say the Deng Xiaoping Revolution, the enormous uh, might of the Chinese economy coming up in the 2000s. And we saw that just a matter of purely demand and supply, oil prices rising steadily from the mid uh, the 2000s on it was $55 a barrel average in 2005. <clears throat> then it went up to about $98 average in 2008. 2009, because of the Great Recession, it came down to about $63. <laughs> now we are back uh, in, in, in December, before all this trouble started. It was $90 a barrel, Brent, and Brent is the best benchmark code to use rather than American WTI. Then in January 2011, Brent went up $5. In February, when there were, there were more uh, problems, went up to over $100 a barrel. And now we're in early March. We're talking about about $115 a barrel. So we are uh, not yet where we were in the middle of 2008. But it's not not that comfortable in terms of the economy. If it continues to rise, it will definitely have an adverse impact on the recovery. But you have to look at it that while we basically are fairly independent compared to other countries, we are independent from coal, we are independent of gas, we, we, we don't need to import any gas, or hardly any gas. For oil, we still produce, if you add up crude oil, natural gas, liquids, and biofuels, we produce about 8.5 million barrels a day, but we're still importing 10 million barrels a day. That 10 million barrels a day cost about $200 billion in 2005, but in 2008, when the price was $98 average, we're talking about $360 billion. So if we were to average $100 this year, it's $360 billion. And you have to sell quite a few Boeings to get to that number. So uh, what has pushed that price up in in, in the past couple of of weeks? Well, first of all, market fundamentals have some impact on it. The demand is still robust. We were looking at the market before all the trouble started. a market pretty much in balance. We were looking at a somewhat slowdown in the growth of demand, because last year was an exceptional year in terms of overall demand. We were looking at uh, some more growth in non-OPEC supply, and OPEC producing a little bit more. We were looking at a market imbalance, nothing special. We were looking at prices this year in the range of 80 to $90 a barrel. Then the trouble started, and the trouble actually uh, initially is, is is more based on I would say the what we call the financials rather than the market fundamentals. right now to, to look at demand and supply globally, there is really no real problem. there's more than enough supply to meet a global demand. The problem you have right now is is expectations. So first of all, you've got the disruption in Egypt, uh, Yemen, and, and it's good. If you add up e- Tunisia, Egypt, and Yemen together, their net exports, net exports, at 300,000 barrels a day. So that's insignificant, so the oil market didn't react much to it. But Libya is, of course, a different matter, because Libya produces about 1.6, 1.7 million barrels a day. That's a substantial volume. Uh, it's, it's small compared to Saudi, which now produces 9.3 million barrels a day, but it is a significant volume. And it is a very light, sweet crude. So for European refiners, this is a kind of a preferred crude in their refinery system. So you take that out, you have to replace it. You try, as a refiner, to replace it with a similar type of crude. And you have to get that from Algeria or from Nigeria and, uh, and a few others that produce this kind of crude. Now, Libya is not completely out yet. I think it's down by about 2 thirds of what it was producing before. So maybe still half a million barrels a day are coming out. And we have no idea what will happen in the days and weeks ahead. It could completely come to a stop. And maybe if things were to be resolved relatively soon, it will start later in the year inching up again. Saudi Arabia has immediately increased uh, its, uh, its production by about the equivalent of what we lost from Libya and made it clear to the market that they will produce more if the market needs it. Now it's not a perfect, you uh, know, because that code crude is a different kind of crude that you get from from Libya, but on, um, there are other refiners who can run that type, type kind of crude and get the same kind of product out of it that uh, uh, the uh, different type of uh, refiners in Europe get out of Libyan crude. So on a global basis, it's not a real problem. At the same time, there's still. On top of this, the Saudis have already taken now close to a million barrels a day, about 800,000 barrels a day, out of their spare capacity and start to produce it now. There's still around uh, 3 million barrels a day spare capacity in Saudi Arabia alone. There's another half million in uh, Kuwait and the Emirates. So if you add it all up, there's still in the world about 4 million barrels a day of spare capacity. Now, if you look at it from the market fundamentals point of view, you say, well, what is the problem? Well, it's it's really, from, from that standpoint, is no real problem. In other words, demand can be met with the available supply. On top of that, if something were to go wrong temporarily, we are sitting on 750 barrels, million barrels, of strategic reserves. The European Japanese have strategic reserves. The Chinese have strategic reserves. So that could all be brought to the market if you're talking about temporary uh, problems of, of, of months or half a year or even a year. So there is no physical problem in the near term, unless you worry about the uh, problem extending to uh, other countries. Uh, that hasn't happened, uh, but the people in the who were in the investment community and now have pushed the price <coughs> up about uh, fifteen dollars. No, sorry, twenty-five dollars above what it was uh, last December. They are worried because when we say, well, the Saudi did a great thing. They took that out of spare capacity to put it on the market. The pessimist will say, yes, but then we have less spare capacity. So uh, when demand picks up, we could have problems down, down down, the road. And it's also a matter of investors. Investors, when they see the stock market not doing too well, they want, uh, they want a different mix of investment vehicles. And oil is one of those commodities that has become very attractive as an investment vehicle. So it helps to push the price up. If, of course, the, pro- the, the problem would extend into Algeria, which, who knows, it's not, no, currently not expected, but then it's the same kind of light crude, and you would lose another 1.3 million barrels a day, then, of course, it would be more worrisome. Still, from the physical point of view, you can still handle it if, if the Saudis do what they have said they will, and add more capacity on stream, and the emirates and Kuwaitis could put more on stream either. We have to look here that the Saudis for the past 25 years have been almost perfect custodians of their oil wealth. In other words, they've always made it available to the market whenever there were disruptions elsewhere. During the Iran-Iraq War, during the Iran Revolution, during the Gulf War in 1990, during the big strike in Venezuela, every time the Saudis have put more oil in the market because they don't like these prices to go too high. As uh, the minister Ali Naimi has said, he said $100 is too much. We like the price to be lower. Why? To be competitive. They don't want us to push too fast into alternative forms of energy. Neither do they want the economy to suffer. So they want to make that oil available as much as they can. Saudi is really the key. And I think many times we don't understand that in, in this country. Saudi to the oil market is what corn is. To, uh, American corn is to the world market for, for, for corn. Uh, Saudi controls about, uh, well, about, about 260 billion barrels out of a trillion barrels, about a quarter of the world's reserves of conventional oil, conventional oil. And they, put, they have the capacity to produce about 15% of global production capacity. Now, you were to take that out, you get a real shock to the system, a real bad shock. It uh, would, would be worse uh, than the shock that we had when the Shah fell. The Shah fell production came down from six million barrels a day, in the whole full decade after that, to half that level. And it never, never went back to the level that production had had under the Shah. Now, as I said, the Saudis have been perfect custodians of the wealth that was uh, given to them by God. Uh, There is no reason to believe that the Saudis will change this attitude. But we have to also help them. I think one of the problems we have had is that uh, our our policy towards the region has not always been optimum. We use domestic politics, and the domestic politics is then translated into foreign policy, and has made it very difficult for people in the region to continue to follow a very strong, uh, let us say, pro-American policy. Uh, Secondly, let me only say, because my time is up almost, that. Uh, there is no substitute for liquids, for oil and natural gas liquids, in the next 10 years. So whatever we do, whether you do, whether you believe in a solar revolution and a biofuel revolution, the next 10 years, you get it. Nothing, Nothing can change the equation that we have in the oil market today. Nothing can change the global dependence on Middle East oil. And therefore, the world has an absolute interest in keeping the area as stable as possible. And if we don't, Well, then we will have to live with the consequences, and we could very well have oil prices that rival what we had in mid 2008 or higher. So we have a vested interest, and I think we probably have to, to, uh, in the short term, the only thing we can do is have a policy that is more reasonable and more balanced toward the region. In the short term, from the purely energy point of view, there's absolutely nothing we can do. So we'll just have to use this time to finally have an energy policy that will work. Both President Bush and uh, President Obama (coughs) have put into place what we call a CAFE standard for the automobile sector, which will dramatically improve the efficiency of the new cars on the road. But before that, will have a major impact on the 220 or 30 million cars on the market. That will take 20 years. So how to get through these 20 years? And so I will leave it there. That's really. The impact, if something were to go wrong in a country like Saudi Arabia, it would be almost too dramatic to, 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 to think of. To, inshallah, everything will be peaceful uh, in the key regions where the oil is in the GCC states. Thank you Thank you, Herman,
0: and uh, truth and labeling here, because of a plane uh, commitment, airplane commitment, <coughs> going to the region, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Oman, uh, Dr. Franson will have to leave before the other panelists. So what I suggest is that those who have energy questions fill out those uh, questions, and I will, in an email format, uh, get them to Dr. Franson, and we'll explore the possibilities of seeing at least that the energy questions are, are answered or responded to uh, in, in that fashion, if that's all right with you. you. Uh, and next because, uh, no stranger to a number of individuals who've been following the literature pertaining to Saudi Arabia. Robert Lacey, British, uh, who in 1978 moved to Jeddah with his family uh, to research and write a blockbuster book that uh, belongs to the bookshelf of any and all who focus seriously on uh, on Arabia, uh, in terms of uh, uh, dynasty, the dynasty, the kingdom. Excuse me of Arabia and the House of uh, Saud, uh, which came out in uh, in 1982, right when there was a change between King Khalid and and, uh, the King up until June 2nd, 1982, and then King Fahad, who who followed uh, in terms of the timeliness and relevance of that. He's returned to bring up uh, to date that story uh, in a smaller book, but packed uh, with uh, hard to come by information and insight in terms of inside the, uh, the kingdom it's a focus on kings and, and clerics and modernists and terrorists in uh, the struggle for, for Saudi Ar- Arabia. Last evening, he presided at the premier at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History and Arabia 3D, in which he had been intricately involved with the firm of Zainal Corporation in Saudi Arabia, particularly Khaled Ali, uh, uh, Ali Reza. Uh, Khaled Ali Reza. And we are lucky to build this uh, seminar for today uh, around his uh, coincidental presence uh, here in Washington and having this brief window. Robert Lacey.
2: Thank you, John, very much indeed. Um, <coughs> I feel right on the spot now. Following on from Herman, he said uh, the future of the world virtually depends on Saudi Arabia, uh, certainly the future of the oil market. Um, I have not got. Um, let me hold the microphone. I have not got an easy answer to that, but uh, that is why John's gathered us together today to um, explore that, and um, I'm sure as uh, my colleagues here talk, we will work towards um, uh, an answer. Um, I'd like to contribute just four things. I'm a reporter. Um, I uh, I like to analyse in my books. I have very definite ideas about this question that's before us, but I'm not going to put my own answer on the table straight away. You know, is the freedom train going to roll through Saudi Arabia? Is it all going to go up in smoke? So that um, Herman will have to give us a, a new uh, picture of, 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 of the energy world. No, I would. Thanks very much, Herman. I would, I would like to just report, I, w- I was in Saudi Arabia ten days ago, I'm going back on uh, Sunday night um, to the Riyadh Book Fair where my, book will, my new book, Inside the Kingdom, will actually be on sale for the first time ever in Saudi Arabia. I'm not sure if that's altogether a good thing, um, but um, it's at the Riyadh Book Fair and I, it, it'll, it'll be my honor to be there talking about it. No, I'd like to report on four things, four significant people that I've spoken to in the last couple of weeks. The first of them is an out-and-out reformer, sort of chap that gets, re- I'm not going to mention names now, but a sort of man who uh, rightly gets reported much in the New York Times and uh, his views are the sort of views with which we in the West as liberals and Democrats um, feel very comfortable, Western educated, um, One of the big things we have to ask ourselves as we look at this question about Saudi Arabia, we hear a lot from people like this and everything they have to say is valid. Saudi Arabia faces some major challenges. Um, You know, the fact that so many people can't afford their own house, the fact there is corruption, the fact the royal family take too much of the pie, in the opinion of many people, something like the Jeddah floods. Now, I spend a lot of time in Jeddah, people are very angry in Jeddah at the way in which um, people died two years ago. There was a great commission of inquiry. Floods happen again, and more people die. Um, There's a question of efficiency. That's got to be handled. There's there's the issue of, of women's rights. I don't want anything I'm going to say now to minimize the importance of these challenges that face the kingdom and will have to be resolved. But we should remember that when we hear the views of radicals about Saudi Arabia, we have to ask ourselves And it takes greater experts than me to to say how representative are are these people um, of the kingdom as a whole. Now, the the British Embassy recently did a survey on this. I can't speak for the accuracy of uh, my my colleagues in 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 the British Embassy, but they held a fairly professional market research poll on change in Saudi Arabia and what people thought. Twenty percent, roughly, twenty percent of the sample said. They wanted more change. Those are the people that we hear about. That's the person I'm going to quote to you. 20% of people said, well, things are just about right as they are. And 60% said things had changed too much. And I think that's what we have to remember about Saudi Arabia. I can't speak for those figures, but they they, they feel right in my bones. That's what most people most people in Saudi Arabia they see the problems, but um, the idea of changing things becoming, let's not forget. But Islamists don't agree with democracy. Uh, the Bin Ladens uh, and the non-violent is- Islamists, who are of their opinion, don't see the ballot box as a solution for their society, because that is man's judgment. Um, they think only God can find the solutions to their society. And we're dealing with a society which is um, very godly. Anyway, to go to my friend. he's a He's a lecturer in Saudi Arabia, he lectures diplomats, um, teaches young diplomats in the equivalent of the Foreign Service Institute in in Riyadh. Um, He he has a human rights organization that meets openly every Monday evening in uh, in Riyadh. Uh, Princes uh, send their representatives to listen to what is being said. He, a few months ago, to my astonishment, sent a, a letter to Uh, King Abdullah that was published um, in the West calling for the dismissal of Prince Naive, the Interior Minister. Uh, The much dreaded, and we might come on to this later, conservative Interior Minister, I think over-dreaded and uh, a very important figure in the future of the Kingdom. But um, he called for his dismissal and he asked the King that um, Prince Naive should go on trial for his abuse of human rights. Now, You can agree with this or not, the point I'm making is that this man um, Published the letter. It was not published in the, in the Arabic press, but it was published on the websites and in the West. He's still there lecturing um, in Riyadh. So when people talk of the dreadful autocracy and lack of freedom of speech in Saudi Arabia, they should bear in mind things like that. Um, he organizes regular demonstrations. He is one of the people who's called for a demonstration on March the 11th. Um, but when he does so, in a polite Saudi fashion, he sends a letter to the Ministry of the Interior to ask if he can hold the demonstration. Sometimes he gets permission and the demonstration gets held. A few weeks ago, there were unemployed teachers who were demonstrating outside the Ministry of Education in Riyadh. Sometimes the Ministry of the Interior says no. So he doesn't do anything, but he writes it down in his report that will go to Geneva. Uh, the annual report of the uh, um, International Organization for Human Rights. I mean he says we win both ways. If the Ministry let us demonstrate, we get our demonstration. If the Ministry says no, well we chalk it up uh, as a black mark against the Kingdom and it will go on their human rights roster for the year. And then, if the Ministry doesn't say anything on the safe side, they don't demonstrate. Well, we shall see what happens on, on March the 11th. But uh, just to finish my Little anecdote about him. He said, Would you like to come with me to the Court of Grievances? It was just across the road um, in, in Jeddah by the, the Freedom Tower. He said, um, One of our young men got arrested a year ago now. Uh, he's still in jail, arrested by the Mabahith up in Qasim, uh, uh, for distributing our literature to um, Islamists. Uh, he said, I reckon the Saudi government is very worried. They, they, they don't mind as long as the human rights people and the Islamists stay on separate sides. But if they got together, that would be that would be worrying. And uh, this young man was uh, was arrested. Uh, so I went along to the Court of Grievances, a uh, um, big office building rather like this. Um, the actual courtroom itself is about the size of you know, this first part of, of, of the room. Um, we went in to the, the courtroom. It's like an office there. Across the table from us sat the judge a religious man we could tell a young man in his late 30s no a gal no no ring on his his um, his headdress um, and uh, with me was my my friend the activist and the father of this young man um, who uh, um, the father happens to be a professor of jurisprudence up in up in uh, scene and he brought along two of the young man's brothers uh, Kids, they, they they were very happy to be off school. Um, they'd come down from uh, Kassim, um, and 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 we sat together. We got summoned into the court. The very <coughs> modern, world, as I say, just like this, really. Um, a long table down the middle, two TV screens behind which there was a clerk tapping away, and the judge was on one side, and we were on the other. And we asked if there was any objection to me being there. He said no. It's worth remembering. I mean. People say a lot of bad things about Sharia law, but Sharia law has an independent legal system, perhaps not like what we have in the Old Bailey in Britain, but it is, it is independent, much to the chagrin of the government sometimes. And he said, well, what's the problem? And the father said, well, my son now has been in jail for a year. And uh, we know uh, he, that the law says he can be detained for six months, but it's been more than six months, and we want him out, please. So the judge then turned and spoke to the clerk, who was behind the screens, and, and gave his version of what was going on. We were sitting there, and here were these two big screens. And the father was looking at them. The writing was literally coming up as, as, as the judge was talking. And the father said, well, no, that's not quite right. This is what you should say. And they changed it. And, and the judge then said, well, are you happy? with This is your complaint, is it? Fine. He said, who are you complaining against? He said, the Ministry of the Interior. Uh, he said, well, where is the lawyer for the Ministry of the Interior? no one in the room. So the judge called his client and said, please go out and find out where the lawyer is in the Ministry of the Interior. So out he went and you heard the voice echoing all around the hall, uh, the Ministry of the Interior. Um, uh, He came back he said there's no one there. So the judge duly said, well let it be recorded that the Minister of the Interior has sent no one to represent his case. We will reconvene in three weeks. Um, If there is no lawyer for the second time, then um, we will confer on this and make our judgment. Now, that's coming up next week. I'll be back in Riyadh to see what happens. Um, uh, what's the point of this story? The point of it: is Saudi Arabia is, is 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 in Western imagery so so opaque that people can't believe that anything as rational as this will happen. We will see what will happen and what judgment the the, the judge will will bring. I am quite confident he will call for the. You know, since the ministry gives no opinion um, and no defence, that he will call for the young man to be released, and then we will see um, what happens. Uh, my second, uh, and I have not spent so long on the first—I haven't given myself wrong for the, for the last three. Uh, I spoke on the phone two days ago to the right one of the right-hand men of Sheikh Hassan Safar, who is the leader, as you probably know, of the Shia in the eastern province, uh, to ask. How he felt things were going, and what about Bahrain and Iran and so on? Well, he said the first thing to note is that Iran has not said a word. Uh, people worry about the Shia in Bahrain as being a, uh, a fifth column for Iran. Well, you know they are Bahrainis. There's no evidence of, of Iran. Uh, he said Iran is, is something is used by people um, to uh, create fear. He said <laughs> over here we have no loyalty to Iran. We are Saudis. Uh, we want to work inside Saudi Arabia. Uh, I said, well, what do you feel about these calls for reform? He said, well, of course, off the record, we support them. We know all about these petitions that are being presented to the king, but we do not put our names to them because that would be counterproductive. We know how the average Saudi feels about us. <coughs> Um, uh, I disagree with it, and it's wrong, uh, but we know it would be counterproductive to the reform process if we were to jump in and, and, and put our names. So we follow what they are doing um, uh, very closely. Um, uh, I asked him what uh, Sheikh Hassan, it was it was a Saturday I spoke to him, um, had said in his sermon, and he said, well, you know, he was talking about the lessons to be learned from um, uh, Egypt and Tunisia and what can happen when a regime gets too corrupt um, and when it gets out of touch with its people um, and uh, maybe that's a lesson for regimes elsewhere uh, in the Middle East and I said well what sort of regime was the Prince, sorry, what sort of regime was uh, Sheikh Hassan thinking about when he gave that sermon he said well I think the congregation would have to come to their own view about that <laughs> very diplomatic uh, this was a man who was one of the leaders of the opposition here in Washington until 1990, when um, there came the Gulf War and the threat to Saudi Arabia, and immediately the Shia gave up their opposition activities. Uh, they went to meet King Fahad, they did the deal, and they are now back in Saudi Arabia working together. And what's the lesson I would draw from that? Well, it's a lesson that if one young prince a point one young prince, made to me. He said, what we are good at doing in the House of Saud," he said, is killing animosity. Um, uh, We have this reputation of being so aggressive, but what we really do is is compromise. As a historian of the progress of Saudi Arabia in the 20th century, it is a story of battles um, and one dreadful slaughter in in Taif. But the the record of the creation of Saudi Arabia is mainly a record of compromise, of of the ability to do deals, the ability to bribe people if necessary, uh, but the the ability to, to create. Consensus. Third person I spoke to, um, a general businessman. Um, uh, What does he think of the latest package of uh, economic um, uh, incentives and reforms that the king introduced on his return? Um, Many of the radicals say, "Well, this is our right. This is just an attempt to bribe us." He said, "It's overdue. It's long overdue." He said. uh, People talk a lot in Saudi Arabia about the power of the religious conservatives. But we businessmen worry about the power of the monetary conservatives. Uh, It's not generally realized that the Ministry of Finance in Saudi Arabia exercises a very, very tight grip on uh, government spending and on the economy. And it's one of the reasons that Saudi Arabia has weathered um, the, the recent economic troubles so much. But this merchant, many other merchants I know in Jeddah feel that it's too much. Uh, I mean, so much of the Saudi economy has to come through government spending. Uh, there isn't yet, there should, there, there is the hope that there will be, but there isn't obviously yet a diversified economy. And so it is how much the government opens the tap <coughs> will determine um, uh, the, the, the future and how people feel. And that brings me to my... Fourth point, I spoke recently to someone very close to the king. He reported the king is in great spirits, uh, that his progress um, uh, is far ahead of what people <coughs> expected. Uh, he's just off to the desert this weekend for the time that he likes to spend in the desert, uh, freaking, uh meeting the, roots of the grassroots of Saudi Arabia, which is what this family is all about um, understanding. Um, he is not going to be hurried. Um, by what um, Bloomberg or CNN have to say. He doesn't have to answer to them. He has to answer to the 60% of people (coughs) in the kingdom um, who are worried about the kingdom uh, changing too much. He said that, um, in fact, the king had been delighted, although, as we know, he went on record as um, standing by Mubarak, Mm -hmm. the man who first came to Saudi Arabia's rescue in 1990. That's why King Abdullah spoke up for Mubarak, because when the chips were down in 1990, Palestine turned on Saudi Arabia, Yemen turned on Saudi Arabia, um, after all the money they'd received for God knows how many generations. And it was Mubarak who said, no, we will come to your rescue. We will send our troops, even before the Americans. Um, And that is why King Abdullah, a tribal man, a family man, stood up for Mubarak recently, even though many liberals in Saudi Arabia felt um, Uh, embarrassed by that. He said in fact King Abdullah welcomes what is happening in in, in the Arab world. Is it not surely in line with everything he has been doing for the last nine, ten years? One of the big differences between what's going on in Saudi mines at the moment, um, and I can't pretend to to look into Saudi mines and uh, that much on mines (coughs) in Egypt or Tunisia, they have experienced a leader who in the last <coughs> eight-nine years has delivered, who was given more freedoms, who has helped um, women um, express themselves, get work, um, uh, the National Dialogue. Uh, the newspapers in Saudi Arabia, even in the last four or five years that I've been living there, are incredibly more open and uh, incredibly more investigative and looking at all sorts of um, things that are wrong with the kingdom and, and talking about them. And he said the king welcomed um the chance that a coming home, obviously coming home from his illness, is a traditional time for giving largesse, yes, but also um, the, 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 the pressure from abroad <coughs> to to make these economic gestures that he's merely made, which which is which in fact are much more than gestures. Ten percent of the national budget, the budget, the national budget has just been increased by ten percent. Um, and will be put in Saudi pockets in various ways, which my friend the businessman very much welcomed. He said, Why didn't it happen before? Um, uh, he said, At last he could turn to the, the, the finance minister and say, Well, I don't care what this is going to do to the strength of the riyal or, or, or our relationship with the dollar. Um, now is the time to spend this money. And um, he views, um, he views uh, what is going on in the Arab world as an endorsement of the things that he stood for. This man, King Abdullah, um, uh, is a man in a hurry. He knows he hasn't got very long. Um, As I say, his recovery apparently is progressing fast. He's hoping to be walking properly by um, September. Um, We in the West may regret the fact that um, a country of Saudi Arabia's importance is led by elderly men, but that is how Saudi Arabia works. Many traditional societies work. Uh, they've worked very well so far. And So um, I think I'll stop at that point. And, uh, um, those are some stories for you, uh, some facts, to um, some impressions to put in your head, and I'll, along with the other members of the panel, be very happy to analyze the raw material as we go along. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Robert, very much. Uh, It's, I think, an accurate observation that around 95% of his points uh, would be new uh, to most of those who heard them, Uh, that they don't come across the Atlantic and get published in the media, mainstream or even fringe or blogosphere media uh, shows the, the merits of having an empirical exposure, an empirical educational experience on the ground. Over time, and in this case, we're talking about uh, more than three de- three decades of exposure. Here. I didn't mention uh, before, and I didn't even mention to you, Robert, that I teach a course at Georgetown University called the Politics of the Arabian Peninsula, and uh, there are two required readings each year, and uh, I could choose any of 50 books, uh, but of the two, yours is one of them. Uh, there, and so that that's how praise. Uh, coming from me and the students and the faculty there at North America's only Center for Contemporary Arab Studies. We now turn to David Edmund Long, who is a career Foreign Service Officer, uh, who served in Saudi Arabia uh, um, more than two times uh, there, and was a pivotal advisor to the late Governor John West, who became the first of the political appointees to Saudi Arabia prior to uh, Weich Fowler, uh, also following in the same same vein, as opposed to a career uh, Foreign Service officer. Uh, and that's been the pattern more often since then than it has, has not. Uh, so David was was crucial in making that particular trans, uh, transition. He was also the head of the entire Arabian Peninsula uh, desk and unit in the Bureau of Intelligence Research in the Department of State. Uh, he, he's been a lecturer uh, and an author was the president of the creation of the founding of Georgetown Center for Contemporary Arab Studies. And one of its early uh, executive uh, directors started SIS, George Washington University, he's been at the CIA. His uh, subfields also have to do with, with terrorism. In 1997 his uh, book on Kingdom of Saudi Arabia was well received, so well so that it was updated to the second revised edition 2010, and on top of that, in 2005, the first major book on in English on Saudi Arabia's uh, customs and culture. David Long. Wow. How
3: can, how, how can I go on after that? <laughs> Thank you very much, John. John and I go way back. Uh, when I had gotten back from Saudi Arabia way back years ago, and he was writing on his dissertation on Yemen, South Yemen, and we got a little money in the State Department uh, to find out what the heck is going on in the, uh, in the Gulf states that <coughs> the British were leaving, because we didn't know, because that was what the Brits were doing, and we didn't care, and all of a sudden, my God, they're going to they're be independent. What are we going to do? And so they gave us not very much money at least not by Pentagon standards. Uh, and I got John to go out there. And so he trashed his book on, on uh, South Yemen and did what became a published book, one of the first published books in the United States, a, a scholarly book, on the smaller countries of the Gulf, from, from uh, Kuwait down to Oman. So that was a long time ago, so we'll leave it at (laughs) that. i got to say one more thing. He talked about my uh, uh, relationship with with John West. I I had to brief uh, John because I was uh, the head of uh, uh, Middle East uh, Analysis in the Bureau of Intelligence Research back when he went over there. He was a good friend. Of, he was the governor of, of, uh, of um,
0: South, Carolina.
3: Uh, South Carolina when West was governor of Georgia, and they were big buddies. And, he, and Carter wanted him to be the uh, uh, head of the Department of Commerce, and he wanted to be the ambassador to Saudi Arabia. So Carter said, well, that's what you want, okay. And I had to give him the briefing. And the Near East Bureau in the State Department, that was the Policy Bureau, wouldn't let me write my own briefing because they didn't trust me. And it was terrible. And I thought we were doing him and the country really a bad turn by all this stuff I was telling him. So I got a mutual friend to have so that I could have lunch with John and tell him how I really work. And I told him how it really works, sort of the way South Carolina really works. Because I went to school in North of Charlotte, and, I knew, and my roommate was from South Carolina. And so I was telling him, well, you know, it's a lot like South Carolina. And actually it is. And he got along so well with with the uh, regime. Uh, One little small thing that you who are not from the South might not know is that if anybody from the South says, y'all got to come over to the house, that is not an invitation. (laughs) And I stress this because in order to try to figure out what's going on in that country, you can't look through your eyes. You have to do what Robert has done for a long time, is to try, you'll never succeed totally, but to try to look at it through their glasses, not yours. It's a different world. And what I want to do very quickly is to just make a few comments because of what is going on now, beginning with Tunisia, about Saudi Arabia. Uh, First of all, Another one of my sins was that I was the deputy director for counterterrorism in the State Department back under uh, Ambassador Oakley. And uh, so I learned something about that. Not enough, but something about that. And one of the things I did after I left that job was write a book about it. I was really writing it for myself because we were too busy back then to think about what we were doing. We just had to try to put out fires. And I was wondering, what the heck were we doing in these last four years? And I came across a social psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania who made something I've never forgotten. He said, hostility, the root causes of hostility are fear from to see why they're doing what a lot of other people are doing. Next point I want to make is that it is not your conditions that make you mad. It is your expectations. You know, it's interesting. uh, If if you go back to the uh, civil rights days in our country, you found a lot of very, very, very angry black people. And you would ask yourself, well, do you think when they were slaves back 100 years ago, they were that angry? And my feeling is, no, they weren't. Why not? Because they were certainly worth sh- in worse shape. But if they didn't have any expectations that things could be changed, they just have to make do with what they got. It's called Survival. But if your expectations exceed what you're able to do, or get, or want, that's when you get mad. That's when you get angry. Okay. I wanted to start with that because I wanted just very quickly, and we can, we can continue this in the, in the question and answer. I want to start with, let's look at Saudi Arabia then. Saudi Arabia at the beginning of the 20th century was probably modernizing rapidly into the 12th century. Think about it. They had no modern government. The way you had a government under Aziz when he became Amir uh, of Naist was at his matchless. There, was no, there were no ministries there were no police forces. And you did it by ijma, by consultation, hopefully leading to consensus. And they did this because if you have a consensus, then nobody loses. If you have a vote, there are losers and winners, the majority and the minority. Okay, That's the way it worked. And it was not until. When they took when Abdul Aziz annexed the Hejaz, which had ministries and all this stuff, that he began using those and creating ministries of his own and in, 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 beginning really in, in the 1930s. So the modernization of Saudi Arabia didn't even start really until the 1930s. And it didn't go very far then, because he didn't have any money because he couldn't export their oil until after World War II. So it wasn't until after World War II that the oil era really took place. So the changes, the cultural, the economic, the political changes that have taken place in, in Saudi Arabia since 1947, 1948, wherever you want to start this, they didn't even have any paper currency. They had gold and silver. And, and they, they changed at different rates so it was a mess. So Aramco, when they came in, had to fly in about four or five uh, DC fours full of Maria Teresa silver dollars, tailors, in order just to pay the payroll. And an American took over. They couldn't call it a central bank, so they called it the Saudi Arabian Monetary. Because banks were, you know, they were haram. They were bad. And they made these things that they call hodge receipts. And the hodge receipt says, "Pay to the bearer on demand, so many, uh, yeah, whatever, however many, uh, how much money they wanted." I have one. I have a couple of them actually. That I bought them. Just, it's just like our Federal Reserve notes. And in the 90s, they canceled all, all silver, all uh, metal money. <laughs> it's all paper now. That's happened since the 60s. I throw these things out at you because we're talking about future shock something big. Okay? Now, given that future shock, and given all of the really, really, just incredible changes that have happened in that country, I have a picture, of a, you know, where you cross the road uh, at a, an intersection and it's a yellow sign and has a, a, p- a pedestrian on it. I took this in 1967, and there's no fe- there's no head on it because the religious. Uh, community said you can't have you can't produce a picture of a person because only God can make a person. So this didn't have a head on it. So he was walking across the street without a head. They don't have those anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Things have changed. Okay. So then you ask yourself, well gee so what does all this stuff mean now starting with Tunisia and Egypt is it going to blow up? My answer is it could. It could. There are a lot of people who, for a lot of reasons, have a lot of angst, and have a lot of grievances, and have a lot of fears. But one of the fascinating things is that in this process, and and Robert spoke about this a few minutes ago, there are people who are so afraid of this rapid, rapid change that they want to turn the clock back 1,400 years. You can't do it, but there are people who want to because they're afraid of all of the things that are going on. And then there are others who think we're going too slow. we got to have change right now, by golly. What is the miracle of Saudi Arabia to me? Is it still there? Because when you have... A a dichotomy between people who are scared to death of change and want to bring the clock back, and people who want think we're going too slow. We got to have this. We got the the women have to drive a car. and All this, and I'm not saying these are bad ideas because I think they'll all come, frankly, because the stuff that's come since I first showed up there in 1967 is incredible compared to what it was back then. Okay, but. From there, I go back to, and this, I think, will lead into uh, what Mr. Eisman might be talking about. I think one of the reasons why the country has not disintegrated is because King Abdelaziz had an incredible amount of vision for a guy who didn't know anything about the world outside of Najd, Central Arabia. And he realized that modernization could be a very dangerous thing. It was going to be scary as everything. And So he created what has become a social policy in that country way back then. And that is, we want modernization, not secularization. Now, this was because he was afraid that everybody would lose their Islamic uh, values. But when you think about it, the Islamic values are as much cultural as they are theological. Think about Christians. Being a Christian in Africa, being a Christian in America, being a Christian in Europe. They're all believe in the same theology, but they don't don't act it out even close in the same way, okay? So I'm not talking about theology here, I'm talking about culture. But over time, as it modernized, it got really, really difficult to keep this going, but they have. And what has actually happened is that they have tried, the government has tried to have a balance. Because if they went too fast, they'd have an uprising. It could even be an Osama bin Laden type uprising. If they went too slowly, they could have an uprising of the people who don't think they're going fast enough. So how do you walk that middle line? And I believe that they have done an incredible job of doing it. And it's getting harder and harder every year to do this. And what you're seeing now is how hard it is to do. So we have people who say, we have to have instant reform right now. Well, you have a lot of other people who don't want any reform and want to go back to this never never land that never existed in the first place because they feel that everything would be okay. So as we look at this country, I'll come to the end here and say hopefully Nothing is going to happen much as a result of all of this, all these things that are happening in all over the Arab world, inshallah. But the one fear that I do have is that even though most people are, as, as Robert said, relatively, if they're not satisfied with it, at least they're not hostile to it. But if there became a, a a sort of a madness, a a, a, a philosophy of, the, of, of of people who decided to use lethal methods, it could rip the country apart. I don't think that's very likely, but it's possible because when when you have mob mob. Uh, psychiatry going, psychology going, things like that can happen. So I'm not saying don't have to worry about a thing. Yes, there's things you have to worry about. But if you look at the record and how far they've come, they've come as far since since 1930s as we had had to take from the Renaissance. And when you look at that and all the wars we had to get where we are and still doing it, then I think they have a pretty good chance.
0: And on that, I'll quit. Thank you, David. I come now to our last speaker, uh, Peter Eisman, who's been a close (laughs) student of the region for more than three decades. Uh, Yale Education, and other East Coast Sweetwater Universities. He's one of only three Americans I know who were admitted into the British uh, Middle East Center for Arabic Studies in Beirut. He used to be referred to as Shemlan. Um, All three of them have had sterling uh, careers since then. Uh, That he was admitted and finished uh, is its own high praise. Uh, he comes at this from a different perspective, but no less empirical than David's and Roberts' and Hermann's and mine, in the sense that as a writer, also a speechwriter, uh, his work has appeared in Harper's <coughs> Magazine and The Nation and The Atlantic and been a participant on the News Hour with Jim Lara and All Things uh, Considered and other national public radio uh, uh, outlets. Uh, He fashions himself as, and indeed he is recognized as, an international educator, uh, focusing on the past as well as the future, with he himself sorting it all out in between as as best he can. Uh, He is also working simultaneously on a research project uh, that has enormous implications. And this has to do with the letters of the late uh, King Abdulaziz bin Abdulrahman Al Saud, and we have a distinguished guest here today, who is the grandson of King Abdulaziz, and it is His Royal Highness uh, Abdulaziz bin Talal Al Saud. Now, this last week, one particular cinema, cinematic triumph. Uh, walked away with uh, several of the Academy Awards in terms of the King's speech. Uh, we have uh, His Royal Highness in terms of the Prince's oratory, Prince <laughs> <laughs> Would you just stand and take a bow to the audience? <laughs> Peter, <Eisler. coughs> John, can I uh, do it, John? Uh, I think people might like to have eye contact with you. Uh, and it'd be nice if you could see them. All right. Yeah. And Chelsea and Joss, if you could bring forward what questions you have been able to gather, please.
4: Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Uh, the flyer promised you what you needed to know and um, indeed it seems today all world stock markets are slightly down because uh, they, in the financial community, hate uncertainty. And uh, we have a fortnight uh, until the promised days or day of rage, uh, stated, I believe, 1st uh, from March 11th. And names are sort of gathering by Facebook, whether they show or not. What is Arabia going to look like on the morning of the 12th? Uh, And with such a panel of distinguished Arabists, Arabians, and so on, we've said very little about Saudi Arabia's neighbors. Uh, I think Kuwait will be uh, rather quiet uh, and there as we know it, Uh, it maybe a little poorer for vast sums having been distributed in the interim. Uh, Bahrain is going to make it. Um, albeit by a whisker. Uh, the Emirates, of course. Uh, again, there's a, a great sort of flex of funds there to uh, see them through and a very dynamic program that they're engaged on. Oman has been sort of a surprise to many of us. Uh, and uh, it will make it the uh, demonstrations in SOHAR uh, in this morning's Financial Times and New York Times are described as they're having Achieved a boredom level. Uh, people are wondering why the last 50 haven't moved on, and would they please get out of the roundabout? Uh, <laughs> the uh, Yemen,
2: I'm afraid, will not. Uh,
4: I uh, had a conversation this morning with some uh, several people around the peninsula, and uh, someone whom Dr. Long knows very well, the former deputy director of Saudi intelligence, uh, who himself ancestrally ailed Cementary of the World and wrote a doctoral dissertation at George Washington uh, and later a published book in English on Yemen, so I I don't think the Saleh regime is going to make it in that. We're all going to have a lot of quandaries, but uh, King Abdulaziz, I mean this has been a constant. Americans and perhaps even Western markets are going to overreact to the fall of the Saleh regime. Uh, We will probably yet half hysterical about Islamist or Al-Qaeda uh, directions it might go. Uh, Yemen represents historically slightly more than half of the population of the Arabian Peninsula because water is life and those mountains catch the Saimun, the southwest monsoon, and uh, since time immemorial have uh, bred a density of settled population. Uh, and. Of course, the combination of north and south Yemen into an unstable isotope has been very difficult. Um, how long I, I Saleh will last, unclear, am clear, but I, he's not going to be succeeded by his son. Uh, it doesn't feel like the regime is very strong for very long. Uh, what will follow, I'll probably have to eat the words, will uh, kind of bounce, likely, between the military which has provided sort of the modernizing vector uh, since the unfortunate days of Naguib and Nasser uh, in Egypt starting in 1952 in the last year of King Abdulaziz's reign. Uh, and, and there have been a succession of colonels who have sort of uh, popped out of the wings, often from air forces and other modern forces rather than the infantry. Uh, the Shah of Iran was actually, uh, a military usurper himself who then established a brief dynasty, alas, over. Um, so it could be a modernizing colonel uh, who will need all the luck he can get uh, to govern. Or it could come from the tribes. Uh, I'm told that um, uh, Hussein uh, what, bin Abdullah al Ahmad. Uh, who is one of the paramount leaders of tribal confederation in Yemen. That The two halves, without getting too recognized, the two halves are split. Uh, but tribal politics in Yemen are extremely important, uh, far more so uh, today, perhaps, than uh, the al-Qaeda takeover that... Excuse me, Peter. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Thank you. Uh, so Yemen, uh, we're going to see some changes. Um, uh, that'll be the big one. On the other place that I might mention, Morocco uh, is going to make it. Um, <coughs> interestingly, uh, because uh, and Saudi re- relations with Morocco are much closer than the geography might suggest. Uh, the airport at Agadir has a very long runway, longer than needed in Agadir. Um, there are a great many Saudis who now stop there to and fro their travels to the U.S. and the West, uh, and relations are very close, and you have a fairly <coughs> dynamic young monarch. Uh, and his people, of the demonstrations, I wouldn't call them half-hearted, uh, but they weren't that threatening. Uh, I think Algeria will uh, muddle through. Uh, Libya. Uh, Libya presents uh, a whole, frightening, separate set of prospects. Egypt, we won't even take on. Um, But the peninsula itself, which is what the flyer promised you, you'll see, basically, that uh, the three or four might be called (coughs) petro-states, or or they might be called low absorbers, meaning that they have sovereign wealth funds, Uh, Saudi Arabia foremost, Kuwait, the, uh, the Emirates and Gutter um, will make it. Uh, the money will, will buy time. How much? That is uncertainty. Um, will things be the same? No. Uh, a shock of recognition, I think, has happened, uh, particularly centered on the Bahrain episodes uh, and also the money, the very crisis uh, of the markets uh, with Brent at $115 a barrel presently. uh, This means Saudi Arabia is earning $1 billion a day uh, from with current production levels, and it will be more if they uh, close the gap to fill Libyan production and go up towards their capacity of 12 million barrels a day. Um, So the money will buy quiet, but it's not going to see them through. An organic political change, and it needs to be organic because the inorganic doesn't doesn't last long. And I think uh, many wise Saudis uh, since then, they have a very rich legacy to draw. Uh, and you've heard the other speakers speak of King Abdulaziz, uh, whose career, basically, uh, his life is 1876 to 1953. His reign in, in our time, 1902 to 1950. And his career, uh, in some ways, recapitulates many of the things that the kingdom has subsequently gone through. Um, his title, uh, or even job description, evolved uh, after the Khul riyadh his dramatic recapture of his ancestral capital in January 1902. Uh, he was still... <coughs> Somewheres between the sheikh, uh, i.e. A sort of a, the Bedouin chief, uh, and Amir, a term used more often for the semi-sedentary governor of uh, a regional capital or an oasis. Uh, he immediately assigned the title of Imam, the Islamic component, to his father Abdurrahman, who held it as long as he lived, which was until 1928. So he moved. At which point, uh, King Abdulaziz also assumed that title. So he moved from being sheikh to sheikh and imam, and we'll do a little fast forward to uh, with the capture, or the reunification of the king, the taking of the hijaz, uh, the title Malik, or which actually uh, in the Middle East comes from the Ottomans, but we translated as king. He had been. Sort of after World War I, which vastly shook up uh, the society, the region, uh, the eastern province was actually taken as the Turks were fading in 19, uh, 1913. Uh, and thereafter, his uh, he was sheikh, his father was imam. And again, authority is vested in Arabian society, in, not in the individual, but in the family. And if one looks at the various succession sagas in Abu Dhabi, the al Nahyan have a very vivid history. Uh, The legitimacy is in the family, and uh, when uh, people are unhappy, rather than throw the rascals out, they often go to a different brother. Uh, And so, for example, Sheikh Shabut uh, um, was just not going to be able to keep up with the challenges of the 60s and the imminent British withdrawal in 1971, and he was displaced by a remarkable leader, uh, Sheikh Zayed, uh, the father of the present generation. Uh, so uh, he was briefly hacking, uh, wise man or judge of Nejd. Uh, as the uh, Ottomans were beginning to fade, he took on the Ottoman type. Uh, it's used in Arabian. It's also a uh, first name, uh, Sultan. Uh, in the early 20s, and uh, only with the taking of Hijaz. So you have Sheikh Imam and Malik. And that uh, King Abdullah is going out to the desert to refresh those traditions, speaks to, how shall I say, the Sheikh component lives. It's still very dynamic. And I mention it because so often we overemphasize the Islamic component uh, rather than see the old Bedouin roots for what they were. His life basically was a succession of challenges. He did pretty much everything himself uh, through about the World War I era. Uh, He negotiated treaties with the competency of a Harvard Law School uh, uh, graduate himself. Uh, He had no foreign minister. He wasn't himself. Uh, Then uh, he sent his what, uh, third son, uh, Prince, Prince, later King Faisal, to represent him as a 13-year-old to the court of King George, covered very vividly in Mr. Lacey's book. Uh, and that was sort of the beginning of hiving off from this sort of one-man band uh, the function of foreign ministry, uh, which has actually rather uh, stayed in the Al Faisal wing of the Al Saud since. Uh, There was briefly, uh, actually an escort on the trip, was Ahmed uh, and who died quite young. Uh, The, uh, was it Abdullah Dambouji, the the Iraqi advisor who uh, existed for a little bit in the 20s. But basically, uh, until 1926, (coughs) it was handled on a rather informal personal basis. The taking of the Hejaz collided with the outside world. Bilad uh, al-Kamasil is one of the sort of sobriquets for Jidda. Uh, it's the land of the consuls. And uh, indeed, the Soviet Union was the first, uh, under Stalin, was the first power to recognize. Uh, the U.S. was in a rather quiescent phase of diplomacy under Henry Stimson at the time uh, in the Harding and Hoover era. Uh, and recognition <coughs> were not extend it till later. It would be an essential component uh, in the entrance of SoCal in uh, the person of an attorney, uh, Lloyd Hamilton, in February of 1933, coming to negotiate an oil concession. Because had there not been uh, a kingdom uh, and legal sovereignty, there couldn't have been a deal. Uh, and indeed, one of their advisors, Francis Loomis, had been sort of probing these questions with the State Department. Uh, Women, is this place for real? Uh, and actually, it was Fouad Hamza, one of the king's uh, Syrian Lebanese advisors, who had, in effect, pr- uh, first written Herbert Hoover saying, hey, we're here, would you recognize us? Uh, so uh, it took several years, and the good offices of a Underrecognized and very formative figure, an American philanthropist by the name of Charles R. Crane, uh, sort of, uh, who Carl Twitchell was Crane's employee and Crane's donation uh, to the, the Mideast efforts. He himself was both wealthy and aged uh, and Crane uh, had kind of a first-name social relationship with Roosevelt, also with Republicans. Uh, he was received Twitchell, his man, was received by Wallace Murray and so on. Recognition did occur. Uh, but everything was ad libbed. Well, the oil deal uh, and the, uh, all of them recounted in Discovery, Robert's book, and so on, where literally those Maria Theresas were counted out uh, on the table of the Dutch bank in Jeddah, one by one by one, they were preciously needed, uh, created Indirectly, a Ministry of uh, Finance, uh, and these ministries, one by one, uh, actually the Council of Ministers was established in fifty-three as the king was approaching his death. His uh, his era is going to be a rich source for whether the Saudis come up with a quasi constitution, written, unwritten, spoken, unspoken, whatever. Uh, there's a great deal of material in that life, just as we have found here with our own founding fathers. Uh, Just to close with one remark, uh, the Chinese ideograph, I was reminded this morning, for crisis, which is what the markets still think we're in, the newspapers still think, is a combination of two ideographs, one for danger, one for opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. For the uh, question-and-answer
0: period, I I will uh, allow our speakers to respond from where they sit. Several of uh, the questions uh, have to do with more recent events here, and uh, the first two will go to um, Robert. Uh, Is there any information on what kinds of things the 60% of Saudi Arabia's citizens thought had changed too much. Uh, Another one says that they saw the Arabia 3D IMAX film in Chicago last year and again last night, but noticed some of the material concerning, quote, Wahhabi Islam, end of quote, and the role of women in Saudi Arabian society was removed from the film. I thought the Chicago version was valuable. Do you have any background? or comments on why the
2: edits were made. Those are two questions. Thank you. Should I just move on sure. Thank you, John. Um, first question, um, uh, what are this 60% of conservative Saudis worried about? A lot of it is to do with women. Um, a lot of um, uh, Islamist thought, conservative thought, is simply devoted to controlling the women. Um, the sort of issues being mentioned about driving and that sort of thing. Um, I've been visiting Saudi Arabia for 30 years. I can remember when I first went to Saudi Arabia in 1979-1980, you could see, when you stayed in Jeddah, you go north to the creek at the weekend, you'd see women water skiing on the creek. Well, you don't see that anymore. Um, If women go into the water, it's fully in their black um, and they emerge dripping with water. The serious point here is that I'm, I know, I'm friends with some of those ladies who water skied in their swimming costumes. Um, and uh, we're all older and wiser now. Um, and they, um, they they may do that still when they go to Europe, but they are very conscious that in their society um, they are living in a more conservative society. Um, that, um, the, the consensus is that um, Westernization um, in terms of uh, women's freedom, sexual liberation, for not just the women, but for young people too, has gone too far, and that they would like to keep the old ways. Um, One particular example, um, uh, I was involved in making a documentary film, uh, recently about Saudi Arabia that was shown on MTV, and um, the very compelling opening episode of it showed a young man, a young Saudi, who use the internet to hook up with a, um, a young Saudi woman. Um, uh, you probably know now that, um, uh, is typically irrelevant, well it's not irrelevant. Um, I was at a wedding the other day and a friend of mine was involved, in, this is in Britain, involved in the entertaining of the wedding. He said, do you know that 60% of the weddings that we now entertain for um, have all been started with internet connections? Um, we're talking about Britain now, and I'm sure the same is true in um, uh, in, in, in in America. Uh, anyway, uh, this relationship did not lead to marriage because um, they arranged to meet in a particular sort of particular shopping mall um, at at the weekend on a Thursday. And when the young man arrived at the door of the shopping mall, the guards wouldn't let him in because uh, the security guards on Saudi shopping malls, um, on the whole, do not allow single men in. Perhaps all through the week, in certain areas, just at the weekend.
3: Because they won't buy anything.
2: Well, possibly that, but he was absolutely furious um, uh, that his personal liberties had been infringed and he couldn't go into the shopping mall to meet this young lady that he got to know on the internet. So I said, well, would you mind your sister meeting someone on the internet and then going into a shopping mall and meeting up? He said she would never do that. I wouldn't allow that. Um, uh, This would be absolutely disgraceful. Um, and there's two points to that. One might be, to, to most of you, the habitual male hypocrisy uh, that, that applies to Saudi Arabia's everywhere else. But this is a young man speaking. You know, we're often told this statistic about how many young people there are in the Arab world, and there are uh, this enormous number in Saudi as elsewhere. But they are conservative. A lot, my, a lot of my Saudi friends sort of not shake their heads about the conservatism. Of their um, of, of their young folks. So when you hear this, you know, statistic about the enormous number of young people in the Arab world, I can't speak for the young people in in Egypt and elsewhere, <coughs> um, but certainly in Saudi Arabia, many of them are more conservative and more religious um, than their, their elders. This is not to say they don't have grievances, but um, their grievances are in another direction. Um, uh, just on the other side of that though however this is not directly in answer to the question but it relates we're talking about I was talking about um, uh, the way in which so much reform um, so much feeling revolves around the power of, I mean this is the problem with women driving it's nothing to do with religion um, whether or not women can drive a car um, as we know the result of the Saudi ban on uh, women being able to drive is that Saudi women are placed in a car with a man to whom they are not married. Um, it's absolute contradiction of what Islam says, and that is why one of the more conscientious sheikhs um, um, uh, uh, whom I've met, came up with this bizarre idea that the ladies might care to express a little breast milk so that the, the 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 driver would drink it, and then they'd be consanguineous and everything would be respectable. Um, I mean, that just shows the ridiculous nature of it. This is tribal. uh, That is what the ban on driving is about in Saudi Arabia, because at the end of the day, every Saudi man knows that no self-respecting woman would have anything to do with her Pakistani driver or anything like that. Um, But um, a sign of how things are changing is the fact that the Saudi bride price now for a working woman in Jeddah is higher than for a non-working woman. Um, uh, by Saudi tradition, you can call it the prenup, whatever you like. Um, a Saudi diary, a, a present for most middle-class families and less than middle-class families, is quite high. It's about 150,000 rials. What's that? $18,000 or so. It's quite a lot for a young Saudi man to find. Um, um, <coughs> it's part of the standard social procedure. But if your, if your, if your bride is um, uh, working, then it is more than that. And that surely um, is a sign of the way in which things are changing. Just as the way that the fact that it is men who are going to change the driving ban in Saudi Arabia. I have so many young Saudi um, fathers who are just infuriated that they have to get up early in the morning, drive <laughs> their children to school, then they have to go to work, then they have to pick the kids up from work, and then they have to take their wife out shopping uh, because they can't afford a driver. And so there's no doubt that this change is coming. It's simply a question, as um, both David and Peter have said, of speed. The, the specific question about changes to the film, um, the, there were changes made to the Chicago version as a result of the Ministry of Information feeling unhappy about certain aspects of it. The film itself was not changed. The um, soundtrack was changed. Uh, there was a section, for example, in the film where you saw um, Doughty, the great explorer, um, who opened up Medain Saleh. Um, when we made the film, we, we of course had thought of the fact that Doughty went on to penetrate Mecca as, a, as an infidel, uh, to write about it, to smuggle alcohol into Mecca, to write very disparagingly about Mecca, and uh, we agreed with the Ministry of Information that to elevate this man um, was, was a mistake. And so that section of the film simply referred to explorers and didn't mention him by name. Um, we didn't tone down uh, what was said about women. We'd actually got something wrong. We said that uh, Saudi women could not travel abroad without a mentor, a male mentor, going with them. Um, that, in fact, has been changed. It's one of the reforms of, of, of King Abdullah, so that was altered. But uh, the film itself remains as it was with these factual corrections to the soundtrack. All right. Thank you, uh, Robert.
0: John,
3: could, could I just make one comment sure. on
0: uh, sure. marriages?
3: <clears throat> it's not just uh, uh, it's not just the net where you meet uh, where you meet folks. It's also mobile telephones. And uh, well, about a year ago, I was over on, in, in eastern province, and we were at like, a little place. Uh, there where we were having a cup of coffee myself and a, and a saudi friend and this guy came up i stand up this guy came up to talk to my friend and they said bla, 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 and he had a piece of paper and he was just swirling back, you know and he left it and walked off and and when he walked off i I didn't know what was going on, but I just took a shot at it, and I said, which is the girl who gave him to give you her phone number? And he said, Did you know? I didn't know, but I took a shot. And he said, well, you see those three girls down there having coffee, the middle one.
5: <laughs>
3: so we got talking about this, and he says that most marriages are still, as have been done for millennia are are arranged by the parents, particularly the mother. Okay? The only thing is that what happens is they made each other and they decide that they want to get married so this guy's sister, this guy's brother go to the parents and say, hey we got a real good guy for, for her or girl for him. And then they have an arranged marriage just like they've had for thousands of years, only it isn't. To me, this is another example of how you can meld ancient tradition with modernization. And I've watched it happen, I really did. On on the part about women, I'll have to tell you this straight. and you may disagree with me, I have never seen more hen-pecked husbands in my life than in Saudi Arabia, and this is the truth. But if you look at cultural anthropology and archaeology, you find that it goes back to the Old Testament that uh, there was a, a division of labor in married couples. And the woman was the nurturer and the homekeeper. And the man was the gatherer and the hunter and the protector outside the home. So he was always outside the home doing all his stuff, and she was always inside the home doing all her stuff. Now, if you think about this, we in America are uh, absolutely <clears throat> cannot do without mobility. My, my, my oldest son was the first kid I ever knew who, who wasn't dying to get his driver's license when he was 16. And I thought something must be wrong with it. And I said, why don't you want a driver's license? Because I don't have to chauffeur my little brothers all over the place. <laughs> okay, but we really do worship mobility. And what the women don't have is mobility. But what they do have is power inside the home. Now, I've watched for, for years and years, for decades, uh, Saudi wives coming here to Washington. And the fascinating thing is you can divide them into two categories, the ones who cannot wait to get home. Because here, they don't have their sisters, and they don't have their sisters-in-laws, and they don't have all the other women to back them up to get what they want. And they want that power that they have back there where they got all the, all the support they want. But over here, it's just husband and wife. And then there are the others who don't ever want to go home because they like to drive around and they like to go to the women's club and they like to do all this stuff. They like they love the mobility. Mostly, as you said, Robert, that it's an economic thing for, for lower income people. <clears throat> Because the husbands don't want to have to do all the driving and they can't afford a show But when you look at what we think of as, as downtrodden women, if you're looking at mobility, they are downtrodden. There is no doubt about it. But if you look at the way, going back for millennia, that, the, that there was a division in labor, it is now breaking up. With
0: modernization but it's still there. These uh, questions will be punctuated by a semicolon uh, among them. One is, any thoughts on reports of tension between the White House and King Abdullah over the U.S. handling of Mubarak's departure? If so, is this tension, if it actually exists, temporary? uh, Related to that, stated differently, is We heard Obama's last phone call uh, with regard to the fate of Mubarak with King Abdullah ended on a less than friendly note. True or perhaps wishful thinking on the part of people who prefer the US not to be on good terms with Saudi Arabia? If true, does anyone know any of the details? And that's one question. A second one after the semicolon, how can Saudi Arabia handle if at all, the Al Jazeera inflaming uh, factor, semicolon. How will the prospect of the possible rapid succession to the throne in Saudi Arabia affect stability? And perhaps related to that uh, last uh, one after the semicolon, since Saudi Arabia is the key to the Arabian Peninsula, what can the United States and Western culture do to keep the Saudi Arabia Kingdom intact? What is the best advice? Any? Can I uh, Peter, 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 give Peter a chance.
4: Yeah. Uh, let me just respond to two of those latter points and leave the others for uh, David and Barbara. Um, Succession, uh, the question about that, seemed to juxtapose it uh, with stability, as if uh, the two were incompatible. Uh, We've seen, I don't think anyone has remarked on it, uh, a quite extraordinary episode that's been sort of hidden in plain sight with the King's medical treatment in the US uh, and stage recuperation (coughs) of the hotel, Morocco, and back to the kingdom men. Prince Sultan was not exactly terribly well himself during this era, and we have come through a very difficult six months globally, uh, and delegation worked. Uh, And this would have been unthinkable, I believe, to uh, King Abdullah's father, who, when he met President Roosevelt in 1945, it was the second time He had ventured outside, he'd gone to Basra in the World War I era just across his Iraq border, uh, Mesopotamia border, and nervously went up to the Great Bitter Lake for uh, about four or five days to see Roosevelt and Churchill leaving Faisal in charge as his viceroy in Mecca. Uh, The whole thing worked from Columbia Presbyterian to the Plaza Hotel to Morocco, back to the Kingdom. And uh, there's just too much at stake now. Um, And a lot of this has been trial and error. We've come a huge distance since the unfortunate Mecca incident of 1979, where the then king's response was to order basically severance of the kingdom's telephone connections with the outside world. Uh, Now King Abdullah is one of the more wired chiefs of state around. So um, <coughs> there will be a complex question about whether it stays in the present generation and uh, through the, sort of, uh, uh, is it the measures of Mubaya? Hayat Mubeya. Hayat thank you. Uh, the, in effect, the, the, the body of, of loyalty, uh, or loyalty commission in my fashion in English, um, which has delegates from Every, the branch of every, or the uh, heirs to every son and so on, uh, uh, complex but uh, representing all. Uh, Americans uh, look, chronically look on Saudi Arabia uh, and not so much with the sense that it's hostile, but that it's improbable. Uh, you know, if there was a place uh, governed by the Quran, that this, the that, et cetera, it couldn't exist in most Americans. Uh, but the Saudis have shown for more than a half century since King Aplaziz's death, uh, they have gone through a lot of the questions. With King Saud's troubled five years of 53-58, they ended up with a choice between a king or a kingdom. They were going to lose it. In 50, and what followed 58-64 to 64 was a very complex uh four-act political drama uh, that I don't think has ever really been written well. But it was, in effect, an education of the al-Saud into uh, modern political times, succeeded by King Faisal and so on uh, in 64. A complex but very, very dynamic and formative period. So whatever happens, the naive question, whether it moves to the next generation, I think it will be stable. The rest of the world is generally concerned (coughs) first about uh, oil and then about orderly uh, monetary flows and uh, both have been pretty well perfected now. We no longer have to rely on high receipts. Um, So I'll let David take over. uh, If I may precede David's remark on that.
0: Um, The National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations has taken since its inception some 225 members of the U.S. Congress and chiefs of staff, defense and foreign policy advisors, legislative and communications affairs uh, directors to Saudi Arabia and 12 other Arab countries. And during the 1980s, virtually every American delegation would raise a hand to a Saudi Arabian minister or government official or journalist or intellectual, academic, what have you, and say, we're really concerned about succession uh, in the kingdom. Uh, could you guide us on that? And invariably, the Saudi Reagans would use reverse analysis uh, and uh, ask where is the empathy here? Uh, because you raised a great question uh, under George H.W. Bush, the vice president was a person named Dan Quayle. Now, can you tell us, should we be worried or not, <laughs> and in the event that uh, he would succeed? It, and in the immediate past uh, uh, administration, the same kind of question was thrown back at us. And they said, we understand that uh, if something happens to the head of state, that a uh, man by the name of Dick Cheney would succeed. Can you allay uh, or assuage our anxieties, our needs, our concerns, our fears, our interest, our uh, expectations? and our objectives, and none of the congressional delegation members had a response. They were (laughs) caught off guard, but it was
3: a sobering uh, influence uh, to them there. David. I just wanted to talk about the question on Obama and and, uh, Uh, Abdallah. These are just my personal views, so you can blow them away if you wish. Uh, Obama had a, a... First of all, the United States did not have any influence that they could use to help anything that was going on in Egypt. Okay. Secondly, and even more importantly, they they faced a conundrum. Because uh, Israel looked at Mubarak as the friendliest of all the Arab states. And with him being friendly rather than as his past, his predecessors, particularly Nasser, they wanted to keep it that way. So if he said they got to have democracy, this would infuriate both the Israelis, but more importantly, the Israeli lobby and those who were pro Israel in this country. It has been said and it is true. That all foreign policy is basically domestic. This was a domestic conundrum that he had. So what what he could he do? If he if he took one side, he would make the, both the the people in the, the public, not only in Egypt but in all over the Middle East furious that we who who uh, talk about democracy all the time are taking the side of a dictator. And if he took If he took the other side, he would get really in bad shape in terms of domestic policy. It was my view that he, if you have nothing to say, say it. But he didn't do that. He sent out uh, Vice President uh, Biden. He sent out uh, Ambassador Wisner. I wouldn't have done a thing. And fascinatingly enough, neither did the Israelis. They didn't open their mouths. Neither did Ikhwan al the the Muslim Brothers. They knew they had no influence over how things were going, and so they were going to wait and see where it was going to get before they said anything. So they didn't say anything. The only person who really, the leader who really said anything, was Obama. So my criticism of Obama is not has nothing to do with what you saw in the media at all. It has to do with it. I would, if, if I had been faced with a conundrum that either way I went, I would be, there would be a, a, a negative side to it. I wouldn't have said anything. So I don't think it was just uh, Abdullah versus uh, Obama in this case. I think they were both foundering around to find out how we get through this thing. And I don't, I personally don't think, and I've talked to people uh, about this. Uh, here, in town. I don't think that that, that the, the, the angst that came out of that is is really something to take all that seriously about in terms of the relationship between the two leaders. And Robert, do you want to add something? Thank you,
2: David, very much. Yes. Um, first question: the row between um, King Abdullah and uh, Obama, or the supposed row. I have no inside information on that. I just have a British perspective. I thought, um, as a loyal Brit, well, great. If 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 Obama and uh, Abdullah are loggerheads, perhaps this enormous military deal that's going through, um, to the <laughs> benefit of the U.S. defense industry, will falter, and uh, we in Britain will get a bit of the share that we should rightly <laughs> have. Um, and two days later, there's an announcement that the negotiations for the deal in, with America were more advanced than expected, and it was all about to happen. So. Um, there in real terms, is, is is an answer on the question of Al Jazeera inflaming um, what's going on in the Middle East. This is a very interesting point because I'm not an Arabist and I only watch Al Jazeera English. And um, most of the employees of Al Jazeera English are former members of the BBC. They're wonderful reporters who. Uh, Because of the ageism of the BBC, can only get jobs working for Al Jazeera, and they do English, that is, Al Jazeera English, and they do a wonderful reporting job. And I think one of the great results of what's happening here um, uh, in the Middle East is that you Americans are finally, your cable stations are finally um, allowing Al Jazeera English into the packages. So that finally Americans will get some sort of objective view or a um, local view as to what is going on in the Middle East. I mean, I think the extraordinary way in which, as a result of 9 11, um, Al Jazeera having come over here and invested was blocked by all your cable stations, I think, virtually, it was just absolutely scandalous. You know, talking about the home of free speech. Um, now, but there is a very big difference between Al Jazeera English and Al Jazeera. Um, And I wasn't aware of this until these recent problems and all my Saudi friends were watching Al Jazeera um, Arabic because it was getting into all sorts of situations um, and covering things that were not normally seen. But they all switched off when it came to the commentary, because they said Al Jazeera Arabic is just Muslim Brotherhood, it is Islamist, Um, it is incredibly propaganda based and so certainly the the Saudis I know, um, take Al Jazeera with a pinch of salt. Al Jazeera Arabic, this is. They they very much welcome the coverage and the interviews they get. They are aware of the slant of Al Jazeera um, Arabic and stay away from it. What can Americans do to help keep Saudi Arabia intact? Well, if that is American policy, and why not? um, Then the obvious thing to do is support the House of Saud. Uh, Love them or loathe them. It's the House of Saud that created this country. It's the House of Saud, which owns the country, uh, still to this day. Um, and if you look at the critics of the House of Saud, um, say, for example, the extreme Shia critics, they want to secede. Um, uh, and uh, they scarcely mention it, but uh, the most extreme, and I'm not talking about the establishment Shia like Sheikh Hassan and, and the others who are working inside the kingdom, but uh, there is certainly a strand of Shia opinion that would like to drift the oil fields away from uh, Saudi Arabia. So um, I think if you're looking at who is the voice of reform in Saudi Arabia, <coughs> who is the dynamic for reform, it is King Abdullah. Uh, his track record proves it over the last um, eight, nine years. Incidentally, sorry, getting a bit British again, talking about the king's speech and uh, king who stutters. Um, I can remember when I lived in Saudi Arabia in 1979, 1980, we were terrified of this man, Crown Prince Abdullah, with his stutter and his, his fierce brows and uh, his National Guard, uh, much more than people now worry about Prince Knife. And uh, one of the great untold stories, which I only heard after I'd finished my book, is the way in which you, the Americans, sent a succession of speech therapists to work with King Abdullah, well, then Crown Prince Abdullah, and to get over his... His uh, he he stutters. So now he he certainly talks to we foreigners um, in a perfectly fluent way. So maybe that's the next Oscar-winning film that <laughs> the King's speech, um, as played out in, in Riyadh. Um, um, but that leads finally to the last question. And I'll be quick on this. The succession, um, as I alluded to in my remarks, people are terrified of Prince Knife, He is seen as, the, as you know as, as the um, as the conservative looming in the future. There are clearly two big names in the Saudi succession in the future. Those are Naif and Salman. These are major figures in the family by any standard, and it so happens that uh, in terms of age, um, that they, they are what lies next. And um, I can only tell you that um, Prince Salman makes sure that his men are at all the matrices, um held by my reforming friends, and they listen, and they go back to him. Um, and report on um, on what is said, Um, and they seem to say the most extreme things and don't end up in jail for it. So I think uh, the ears are open there for um, reform in the future. Um, Just one last British analogy, we in Britain at the moment have a lib con government, a a coalition. That is exactly what Saudi Arabia has at this moment. Um, As Peter said, uh, the liberal Abdullah Went off to um, Saudi Arabia. Sorry, from Saudi Arabia to New York, happily, and then to Morocco, leaving power effectively in the hands of of, of, of Prince Nayef. Um, and what happened? Did the country go suddenly conservative? Uh, was was it possible for King was King Abdullah denied access when he came back home? No, because the House of Saud, as this young prince said to me earlier, kills animosity. They are great compromisers and. Uh, uh, the conservatives, these 50-60% of people in Saudi Arabia, are very happy to see Prince Naive up there. Um, it's a sort of Nixon to China syndrome. Uh, because he's there, uh, they will accept the sort of reforms that Abdullah brings in. What happens when King Abdullah sadly one day will go? Of course, you know, so many young Saudis say to me, I'd give five years of my life uh, to this man so that he could stay alive. Um, I appreciate their sentiments, but I think inside the House of Saud there is, um, as both um, Peter and David said, a great pragmatism. They want to hold on to power. Um, They believe that they have the solution for the future and they understand that uh, reform must come.
0: Thank you. I'll bring this uh, to a close with the following um, comments. Um, Arabia Exist uh, as a constellation of seven sovereign, politically independent, and territorially intact countries. It's not just Saudi Arabia. There's been passing reference to um, Bahrain. That's uh, so to Kuwait and the United Arab Emirates and Oman, and not much more with regard to Yemen. Uh, as to the latter, I've been privileged to be one of two Americans uh, who served as an official observer. For all four of Yemen's uh, presidential and parliamentary elections, uh, with an equal opportunity um, as the portfolio there of, uh, with the uh, National Democratic Institute and the National Republican Institute and the International Foundations for Electoral Systems. And what has hardly come across in the media accounting is how free and fair, how open and transparent. Uh, all four of those elections have been compared to almost any of the other elections anywhere in the Arabian Peninsula. So that's an untold story there. Likewise with regard to freedom of speech and freedom of press, likewise with regard to permissiveness in terms of organized groups, likewise in terms of women uh, gaining the suffrage at this exact same time that men gained the suffrage uh, from the uh, very beginning. But in terms of David's talk about fear on one hand and rising or dashed expectations on the other, ponder the following that Yemen has 130,000 villages of fewer than 200 people in each. You have fewer than 200 people in a village, you have no school, you have no clinic, you have no hospital. You're lucky if you have a graded road, let alone a paved road. You have no electricity, you have no running water, you have no sewage system. And so here you have a situation with the country of minimum oil and gas resources and still less in terms of uh, water resources. Indeed, all of Arabia uh, is barren of a single river, not one perennially flowing stream. (laughs) not one babbling brook, not one constant current creek, not one pond, not one pool, not one puddle. <laughs> this, in terms of an immense challenge, regardless of how free you are how autocratic you are. Uh, these are formidable, massive, pervasive realities, especially in terms of issues of poverty, uh, which are related to dignity and human aspirations and dashed dreams and employment prospects or even educational prospects and employment to come out of that. So uh, Yemen needs a closer, better, more nuanced uh, look. Now as to the implicit aspects of political pluralism and enhancing popular participation in the national development processes, uh, here's where arrogance and hubris perhaps would do better to idle at the intersection for a while without being as judgmental as many are prone to be. Now, Jefferson, who's quoted on so many things, was asked early on, you keep using this word, democracy, what do you mean? And he said, if I had to boil it down to a phrase, it would be the following, the consent of the governed. Now, the consent of the governed can be gained in various ways, through public opinion surveys, through polling, uh, through uh, show of hands, but through constant consultation which is what David mentioned, with a view to obtaining consensus through consultation and being seen to do so, and being seen to take the needs, concerns, interests, and objectives of all relevant groups into consideration before you announce whether there is a consensus. Now, the role models in the United States are not the Ronald reagans not the JFKs, not the silver-tongued Orators, rather they are the uninteresting, non-charismatic, Lyndon Baines Johnson and Samuel Rayburn. The latter, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, uh, the former being the majority leader of the Senate. These were masters in terms of the legislative record that they compiled. Very few mothers or fathers, if any, named their children after either one of the two uh, there, but the legislative record that they left was formidable because of using these values of consultation and consensus Now freeze that thought and go back one week in terms of what the United States did and did not do in the United Nations Security Council. And this is the world's highest uh, political body. It is the one organization in history that for the first time in history has included all nations of the world as a civilizational achievement in terms of aspirations and needs. Until the 1970s, under the Nixon administration, the United States never thwarted the democratic process once. Since 1970, the United States has done it 75 times. So if you look at it just statistically, numerically, within the UN Security Council, the United States has been the leading, with no peer, country of anti-democratic forces. And the most recent uh, resolution was 14 to 1, And the U.S. aborted the democratic process and the democratic outcome on an international legal issue that could not be clearer than black and white in terms of enforcing the fourth Geneva Convention of 1949, which the United States and Israel championed more than any other two countries on Earth. If you look at Article 6 of the American Constitution, it posits that international treaties and agreements and conventions are superior to federally enacted legislation. So here the United States have, with capital letters, neon lights, and italics is not even implementing its own constitution or the laws to which it is a sovereign signatory as such. So when we try to project ourselves empathetically into the of situations of the region and ask the question of what can the United States do <laughs> Uh, to uh, uh, help these countries remain intact. (coughs) It would help a bit if we project ourselves empathetically and see how much more difficult on issues of elemental justice and moral principles and ethical precepts, uh, that our policies, our positions, our actions, and our attitudes make it that much more difficult for our friends, for our partners, for our strategic allies to stand up and say that the United States is our number one friend, and number one protector, the country that we respect more than any others. So when we get preachy on this, didactic and sermonizing, we might keep these two considerations uh, under consideration. I thank all of you for coming. We thank our host, wow. Mel and